Uh, just before I read, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name's John C. I'm the minister here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to see some new faces here this morning. I hope you feel uh, at home among us uh, quickly. Um, and it'd be wonderful if you had time at the end to stay around and have a coffee um, and just spend a bit more time, hopefully, meeting some more of the folk within the church. Uh, one of the things we, we try and do here at Christchurch is make sure the Bible's at the centre of everything we do. Uh, and so uh, our usual pattern is to preach through books of the Bible. We've been going through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and this morning, we've come to Matthew 22 and verse 1. Uh, it's worth saying that the, the context here is Jesus is in the middle of uh, a discussion, a conversation with the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, okay, the scribes and the priests. And he's been telling parables, all of which have built up to this point where he's been able to look them in the eye and say, you, you are going to kill me. You know who I am and you are going to kill me. And so he tells a third and final parable. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent to his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray once more. Father in heaven, there is no more important thing than to hear you speak to us. Uh, there is therefore no more important moment in our week. Uh, there is no more important time in our lives than we come and hear your word. And so we pray in your mercy to us uh, that you would pour your spirit along with your word upon us this morning in order that we might receive it, believe it, and respond as you would have us respond. Uh, bless us, we pray. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. What well, a sobering passage, isn't it? Uh, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible is so is not to avoid passages that are frankly disturbing. Uh, this whole story that Jesus tells, this parable, a parable is just a story with a meaning, really has four scenes. And all I want to do this morning is walk through those four scenes. And they have very different moods. Uh, it begins with an incredible invitation. See that in, in verses one through four? We have this incredible invitation. 
Uh, the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. <coughs> the, the kingdom of heaven, life following Jesus, life in the church, life in the future, uh, when we go to heaven, is going to be like a wedding feast, but a wedding feast held by a king. Uh, back in the, the Easter of, of 2011, um, there were two weddings held at about the same time, about two weeks apart. Uh, the wedding of Kate and Will, and the wedding of John T. and Georgina. I think we got married, I think, two weeks before Kate and Will. Uh, in many ways, they were very similar. Okay, two beautiful brides, two dashing princes, uh, two wonderful days. But one was being held and hosted by the, the Queen, and one was being hosted by my father-in-law. Now, there was one guest in common at both weddings. Okay, check that out. One guest at both weddings. Which one do you think she was most excited to go to? Now, I didn't ask because I felt it would be rude. I am pretty confident she was more excited about going to the wedding hosted by the Queen or by Prince Charles or whoever it was. Imagine a royal wedding. Imagine the kind of the food you would feast on. No expense spared. Every luxury. Everything you need supplied. The best music. The best wine. I'm sure it, well, I'm sure it was. The wedding of the century. Well, Jesus says that, 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 that life in his kingdom is going to be like a wedding hosted by a king. Like a royal wedding. It's described as a feast for his son. I wonder what your impression is of, of, of Jesus and of God. When God says, you know, I want you to come into my kingdom, come into my church, be, become one of my people. What, what, what does that sound like to you? Jesus is saying, look, this is an incredible invitation. What it should sound like is the greatest invitation you, you've ever heard. It is an invitation to feast, to rejoice. And that is an invitation that's gone out all the way through the Bible. Uh, as the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests listened to Jesus preach, they, they wouldn't be thinking, oh, a, a king and a feast, I wonder what that means. Jesus is using imagery that is woven through the Old Testament in the first half of the Bible. And throughout that, that Old Testament, throughout the, the books that make up what we at least call the Old Testament, it was a common image of, of um, the, 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 the party that would arrive one day when God's son came to earth. Let me read just a few verses of one of them. I may particularly need to turn to it, but it's from Isaiah 25, if you're interested. So Isaiah's a prophet, um, preaching, speaking about 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah 25, verse 6, we read this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Okay, there's the feast. I don't know what your dream food would be, but it's there. The rich marrow, the, the well-aged wine. Not the kind of cheapo, two quid from the supermarket on Headingley Road or whatever. The kind of stuff students drink. This is, this is the rich stuff that the queen would serve. On this mountain, as I goes on, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. And he will swallow up on this mountain 
the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. Now, that's strange, isn't it? Here's a description of a wedding. And one of the great promises, alongside the great food and the great wine, is don't worry, the host is going to swallow up the veil, the covering that's over everybody. Okay, in fact, if you did get an invitation to Kate and Will's wedding, that would be a very strange line, wouldn't it? Amazing food, amazing wine, the, the, the best musicians. Uh, and by the way, the queen is going to swallow a covering that's over you all. Sort of magic trip. What is he talking about? This veil that's over all of us. Well, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. We all live under the shadow of death. Death is like a, a big covering over us. We know, ultimately, it ruins everything. Some of you will know that personally and painfully, even recently. All of us know that it's on the horizon. And so it doesn't matter how much you feast now. You know that one day, or one day you'll weep. Um, a few years ago now, or eight years ago now, uh, I had a week uh, where, uh, in the space of seven days, um, uh, on the, the Tuesday, my cousin, with whom I'd grown up, who's my age, uh, we'd grown up, we were really close, um, he died uh, of cancer, very young. He'd just had a little boy. It was one of the worst days of my life, Tuesday. On Saturday, I was best man for my best mate's wedding and meant to be giving us you know, a speech. I said, be funny, John T, go and entertain everybody. On Monday, my first daughter was born, my first child was born, Charlotte. So within seven days, six days, in fact, death, joy, childbirth. It was, it was, a, it was a just, as you can imagine, just a head-messing week. But that, in compact, is what life is like, isn't it? Times of superb joy. Times of total tragedy. But, but the good news of this passage, the incredible thing about this invitation, is, is that God will provide all the joy and swallow up death, as in swallow up the, the one thing that kills everything in the end, that ruins everything. He will destroy death. And therefore all sorrow will go. He'll wipe away the tears and the reproach, the sin of all people. So, so this wedding invitation that Jesus speaks about in the parable is to a wedding, a party, a feast that will never end, never be ruined, and at which, well, at which there'll be no weeping, no, no sorrow. This is what God wants for you. In some ways, my, my job this morning is to be uh, uh, an inviter. Okay. Hear the invitation. That this is what God wants for his people. Now, later in the psalm, sorry, later in the passage, there are some, there are some hard things to hear. So it's important we don't miss the, the glory of the invitation. God is a God who wants to share abundant joy with those he has made, with you this morning. It is an incredible invitation. God is a, a giving God. He's not a God who, who needs to take from you. He's perfectly happy. Father, Son and Spirit, they don't need anything. They don't lack anything. They weren't bored. The whole reason you exist, in fact, is so that he can share with you incredible blessing, more than the world could possibly begin to offer. Now, that will come finally in the future, when Jesus returns and God promises he'll renew the earth. But the invitation goes out now. Come and celebrate my son's wedding. 
Come and put your trust in Jesus. We'll talk more about that later. Come and put your trust in him. And this wedding is yours. Perhaps you're not a Christian. You're trying to work things out. So checking out church and wondering what your strange Christian friends are into. Does God seem austere, severe, scary? He seems to be inviting you to a hard life. He's inviting you not to, not to a wedding, it seems, but to be a kind of slave on a galley ship. It's better than death, but it's not much fun. Well, no, he says, Jesus, you're missing. You're missing what God is actually like. He's a God who longs to give. Now, here in the, in the passage, uh, to dive back into the story, uh, do you see that in verse 3, the king, who is God, sends his servants to call those who were invited to the feast? That is not the first invitation. You need to notice that. He calls those who were invited. Now, you can imagine in, in, in those days, 2,000 years or so ago, um, things didn't work quite the same as they do now. Nowadays, you, get a, you might get a save-the-date card, mightn't you, and then a, a proper wedding invitation. You reply, you know that it's going to be on the 25th of September that Sarah and Dan are marrying, and, and you know to turn up at 2 o'clock. In those days, it's a bit more, bit more freeform. So you'd be invited to the wedding, and then... When the time comes for actually the, the, the party to kick in, the host would say, right, it's now. Okay? Sends the servants out. Go and get everybody. Go and round up the village, round up the town. It's now. And that's what's going on. So these people are those who've been invited already. And then the feast has come. That helps us understand who I think Jesus is talking about. Um, who the people are who've been invited. This story, rather than just being a kind of floaty story that's true of all time, it is set in a particular context, a historical context. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders in particular. They were the ones who had already been invited, heard about this feast, heard about God all the way through the Old Testament. God spoke to them and sent prophets and they had the word of God. And then finally Jesus had turned up. The sun was here. It it should have been party time. Jesus describes himself several times actually as as a groom. I've come. Now's the time for feasting. But how do they respond? Well, not with joy that God's son has come to earth, but with two things. Brings us on to our second scene. If the first scene in verses one to four is this incredible invitation, in verses five through seven, we see a rebellious rejection. Five through seven, it's this rebellious rejection. Come, says God through his servants. But verse five, they, that's those who'd been invited, paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, one to his business. Two ways that they reject the invitation. And actually two ways we can be like them. Apathy and anger. The first way there is apathy, isn't it? They're not rude exactly, or at least they're not outwardly hostile to the invitation. But in verse 5, one heads off to care for his farm. Another one heads off to his shop, to his business, whatever it is he does. Uh, He's not saying, Jesus, I hate you. God, I want nothing to do with you. Rather, he's saying, I'm a little busy. It's not probably my thing exactly. I'm not not kind of a wedding guy. They're perfectly good things. It's good to run a farm. It's good to have a business. We all need jobs. We all need to earn. We all need to eat. It's not a problem. But the problem comes with the fact that they're using these perfectly good things, their jobs, their work, their career, whatever it may be, they're using them to ignore Jesus. So it's work instead 
of Christ. Career ahead of God. It is apathy, disinterest. I just don't care. But for others, it's flat out anger. Uh, Verse 6, others, the rest, seize the servants. The servants here are presumably the prophets. And I think it probably includes John the Baptist and even Jesus himself, uh, who've been big themes in this chapter. Both of them have been big themes in the last um, chapter or so of Jesus' preaching. Uh, They're seized. They treat them shamefully and kill them. For some, it is outright anger, murder even. Uh, Killing God's messengers, angrily opposing them. Now, my suspicion is no one in the room here this morning, or very few people, would say that they are angry at Jesus, that they hate him, and that if he walked into the room, they'd want to jump on him and kill him. We just don't think like that, are we? Most of us are sort of polite, gentle, nice, civilised people. We don't see ourselves in the parable. And that's why it's so important, I think, that Jesus twins this apathy I don't care, with the anger. They aren't two groups, ultimately, but one group. And when God comes in judgment, uh, in verse 7, when he's angry, he he destroys the whole city. He doesn't exempt those who are just a bit busy with their business or whatever. He comes, and for whatever reason, the, the people rejected Jesus. They all come under his judgment. Apathy and anger are very similar. Two sides of the same coin. They're both just doing the same thing, which is go away God. I'm not not interested. Actually, very often, you see people move from apathy to anger when when Jesus gets a little bit closer to home. So so people say, well, it's fine for you to be a Christian. It's nice that you're into that sort of stuff. It's not my my gig, but I'm not not against him. And then they hear that, that Jesus has something to say about their bodies. Uh, that actually how we use our bodies matters. And there are ways of being evil, to use Jesus' language, wicked with how we use our bodies. And suddenly people are incredibly angry, very anti-Christians or very anti-the church or anti-Jesus. But either way, apathy, which I guess is much more likely to be our problem than outright anger, um, apathy itself is deeply, deeply evil. Um, many of you over the last two or three weeks have gone through child protection training yeah, we run children's groups here at Christchurch and, and quite rightly um, we need to be trained how to care for the children in our care properly and also to look out for signs of abuse uh, they're not pleasant evenings they're incredibly helpful evenings I hope, hope you have been they're very well presented to us and you don't leave happy do you you just leave disturbed but hopefully also with your senses arrayed, uh, sort of woken up a little bit to, to know what to look for and some stuff's really obvious isn't it you, you know sadly um, some people do physically abuse children we know that but, but one of the things that, that came out in the evening and it's a really helpful reminder is that neglect is also abusive if I don't feed my child if I leave them locked in the cellar if I don't clothe them keep them warm if I just totally ignore them I would rightly be prosecuted and for me to say, well, I, I wasn't actively hostile to them. I didn't hit them, didn't hurt them, didn't just left them alone, just ignore them. That would be no excuse, would it? 
And yet that, that is what we're like with God. We say, well, look, Lord, I never actually opposed you. I never, I never said anything angry about you. I, I never attacked you. I, I, I just was sort of neutral. I just sort of ignored you. That, that is just as bad. The one who's given us life, the one who keeps us living moment by moment, the one from whose hands everything you have has been given, your intelligence, your wealth, your family, your home, your abilities, everything you have is from him. So to be apathetic, to ignore him, is it's just as bad. It's politer, it's perhaps more English and middle class, but it's just as bad. And see how God responds. This is shocking, isn't it? Verse 7, the king, remember that's God, the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. God is a God of anger as well as love. Our, kind of, our age wants to whitewash that and, and just always talk about, about love and mercy and forgiveness. But Jesus is really clear that God will punish those who reject his love, his mercy his grace, who are apathetic towards him. Again, I think very specifically, Jesus is talking here about an event that happened in history. Uh, so in, in AD 70, about 40 years after Jesus died and rose again, um, that the city of the high priests and, and um, the religious leaders was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. It's something that Jesus predicts several times in the Gospels. It's quite a, it's a big theme as you head towards the cross. So I think very specifically that's what he's talking about, that, that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. But behind it is a God who will punish those who are rebellious, who reject the invitation, that incredible invitation. Do, do you see why earlier I said that we've got to hear that the joy of the invitation. <laughs> you could think, well, that's a bit mad, isn't it? Have you, have you ever said no to a wedding? Once I said no to a wedding. Um, a school friend, hadn't seen him for a long time, he invited me, and it was, it was that stage of life, students, you're probably about to hit it, sort of mid-twenties, but suddenly loads of people get married, and there's a wedding every weekend, and after a while, you're like, oh, man. So I, 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 I wrote back and said, I'm really sorry, I can't come. It happened that I bumped into this guy, who's a Christian, I bumped into him at, at, um, at Word Alive uh, a few months later, totally forgotten about his wedding. Um, chatting in a, a cafe shop, and he said, oh, what are you doing next weekend? I said, nothing, just go home. You know, you know. He was like, oh, right. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting married. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, awkward. Um, what didn't happen? What didn't happen? And my friend Chris, he's actually a lovely guy, uh, and if he's listening to this, Chris, I'm sorry. Um, what, what didn't happen? He's, he's a vicar now, he's a, he's a Christian, he's great. Um, he, he didn't, he didn't come in anger and burn my village down, destroy it. <laughs> Verse 7 could read as if it's over the top, couldn't it? You rejected a wedding invite and now you're all destroyed. It seems over the top, but in a sense that's the point. It's trying to show us how serious it is to reject this incredible invitation. You need to hold both sides together. God God wants to give you incredible blessing. He is so generous, so kind. For free, a wedding invite, remember. He's not asking you to buy a place pay for a table at some posh event, he's giving you an invitation to the wedding of his son, this place of great joy and no death, free. And that's why it's so serious if we reject it. It is mad to reject it. And yet we do, because we're more concerned with our business, with our studies. What is it 
that is leading you away from Jesus. Perhaps totally at the moment you'd say, look, I'm just not there. Why? What is it that's distracting you? Perhaps if somebody would say, well, I, I have started following Jesus, but I can see that actually I'm far more interested in my studies, my relationships, my wealth, my house, my family, my career than him. It's madness. And yet there are more scenes, aren't they? The story doesn't end there. That the city is burned, but the king is endlessly gracious. And so in the third scene, what do we get? Well, we get an incredible invitation, just as we had to start with. Verses 8 to 10, we get another incredible invitation. Uh, he, the king, said to his servants, verse 8, look, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. By the way, he doesn't mean by not worthy that the, the Jewish people weren't good enough. Okay, no one's good enough. Not worthy means rejected Jesus. They okay, weren't willing to take the free invite. Uh, go therefore, verse 9, to the roads, get out to the highways and the byways, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Servants are sent out again. We're sort of moving forward in history, if you like. This is after the destruction of the temple. So the, the, now the, the gospel is going out, no longer just to the Jewish people as it did throughout the Old Testament predominantly, but going out to the Gentiles, okay, which is probably most of us. I don't, I don't know many people, or I don't know, any, don't know everyone in the room, sorry. But I imagine most of us are not Jewish. And so here we're included. Off, off the, the, the gospel goes to anyone you can find. It is an open invitation. That is good news for you this morning. Go to as many as you find, verse 9. They gathered all whom they found, verse 10, both bad and good. It doesn't matter whether the world thinks you're a good person or a bad person. The invitation to you this morning is to come. God does want you at his party. And you see, there's no qualification. They don't invite all those who understand lots. They invite everyone they come across. Imagine just inviting people on the streets to your wedding. Okay, the kind of people who live on the streets, not going to be that tidy and sorted out on the whole, but God invites them in. And the invitation isn't to those who are good people, holy people. Uh, this morning, there's no need to say, I am not invited. In fact, none of us have the right to say, I'm not one of those invited. You're all invited. In fact, in some ways, this parable is being lived out this morning. God sent his messengers, the apostles first, but then the ministers and the preachers down the centuries. So this morning, this parable is active and living. Come, God says to each of you. Come. Come to Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from ignoring him and accept his free forgiveness. God sent his son into the world so that you could be rescued and brought to this eternal life that will be joy beyond your imagining. Uh, yes, you're full of sin. You don't deserve a place at the party. But, but Jesus, the son, came into the world and went to the cross to die for our sins. Uh, all the anger that is rightfully, or should rightfully be poured on us, or all God's anger was poured on his son at the cross. That is why Jesus died. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like God's face was turned from him in order that he might bless us. So you don't need any qualifications. You don't need to bring anything to the party. You say, I'm not religious. And God says, it doesn't matter, come. You say, I'm not qualified. I'm too bad. God says, it doesn't matter, come. 
I haven't repented of my sin hard enough. I don't feel bad enough about my sin. God says, I'm going to come. The only qualification is that you accept Christ as your saviour. And Lord, just come. Accept that you don't deserve to be there, but that God in his mercy will have you. And accept, therefore, that Jesus from now on will run your life. But that is a good thing. Another incredible invitation. And yet the parable ends, fourthly and finally, with another rebellious rejection. This is verses 11 through 14, the last scene, the fourth and final scene, which is a shock, isn't it? We'd love to leave it there. Israel invited, sadly said no. Gospel goes out and the hall is full. But Jesus has a sting in the tail. What's happening? Let's try and work through it. What's happening? Do you see that the, the, the man is there who had no wedding garment? And so the king says to him, friend, what, what are you doing, verse 12? What, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he's got nothing to say. So the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, here is someone who ultimately ends up falling under God's anger. Just the first scene ended with God destroying the city, Jerusalem. That was just a picture of what God will do at the end of time. Jesus is clear that hell exists. In fact, no one in the, uh, no one in the Bible, no other character, no prophet or apostle, no one speaks more about hell than Jesus. Uh, it's terrifying, isn't it? It's meant to be terrifying. You're a fool if it doesn't scare you. Look how it's described. Out of darkness. Have you ever been in pitch black? It is horrible, isn't it? Alone, can't see, don't know what's going on. It's a place of weeping. Sorrow, regret, bitterness, pain, gnashing of teeth. Such a, you, you, you can hear the image, can't you? Gnashing of teeth. Now this is Jesus, gentle and lowly, full of grace and mercy. But he is being honest. Those who reject God's incredible invitation will end up in this place of punishment, darkness. It's called hell elsewhere in the Bible. It's worth pausing and saying, and asking the question, is hell even on your radar? It is the, in some ways, sometimes treated as the kind of dirty secret of Christianity. In your CU, in your small group, in your workplace Christian meeting, in your summer camp, whatever it is, does hell ever get talked about? In your church, if you're just visiting us this week, does it ever get talked about? Or is it just hidden away? If we're hiding it away, pretending that we're being kind to do so, well, first of all, we're saying we're kinder than Jesus. Jesus is a bit harsh, but we're nice. That seems like a bad track to go down. But secondly, we're not being kind at all. We're not warning people. If a fire was sweeping towards a building and I could see it coming out the window, you're all looking this way, I'm looking that way, I can see the fire coming. I don't want to scare you. I'll just slip out the back door. And, but I'm not being kind at all. So the question, of course, is, what's the matter with this guy? Why? 
is he thrown in? Well, it's because he has no wedding garment, verse 11. So what is this wedding garment? Uh, Fundamentally, I think we have to say, this guy is is someone who's come disrespecting the king and his son. He's not come dressed as they asked, but dressed as he fancied. He's not put on his his wedding clothes. Now, there's all sorts of debate about what the clothes exactly symbolize. So some say that that the clothes are being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life of Christ. And there is lots in the Bible about how when God, when we, we come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, God looks at us as if we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, like a white sheet put around us. Children like dirty clothes, all our sins like mud and grime all over us. But God wraps us, looks at us as if we're in Jesus' perfect righteousness. It could be that. It could be. There's also think, uh, times in the Bible, Revelation 19 is an example of this, where, where, where the people in heaven are, are described as being clothed um, in, the, in, in white robes, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. So sometimes in the Bible, our own good deeds are, are our clothing. Now, if it's that one, it's not because the good deeds earned our place. Notice that the people invited weren't those who already had wedding garments. Okay, it's absolutely not the case that God says, if you're good enough, you can come. But rather, one truth in the Bible that is certainly true and made very clear elsewhere is that once you become a Christian, one of the things that will happen is there will be some fruit in your life, some evidence. So our good deeds aren't earning our place in the kingdom, but they show that we're part of the kingdom. We've taken Jesus as saviour and Lord, and he transforms us, and so we will have some fruit. So maybe that's what's going on here. Uh, this is someone who's sort of said some words or got baptised, or he, he looks sort of like a part of the church, but actually he's, he's never repented and believed. I, I'm not sure exactly on the clothes, to be absolutely honest. Uh, my best take, I think, is that it's just a picture of salvation. Ultimately, we know, you know, sometimes if you get a hard passage in the Bible, you've got to use the clearer passages to help you sort of navigate it, or at least stop you saying something stupid, okay? So to stop me saying something stupid this morning, at the very least... Ultimately, we know that what gets someone to heaven and the the eternal party or or hell is whether they've really trusted Jesus as Saviour and Lord. That's it, isn't it? So this person cannot have done that. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, um, the people who arrive at this feast are described as those who are clothed in salvation. Clothed in salvation. So I think this person is someone who outwardly can sort of look a bit like a Christian. Okay, he's not out there spitting at you when you come to church in the morning. It could be someone who comes weekly, being baptised, but actually has never asked Jesus for forgiveness, never taken Jesus as Lord. Don't trust in anything other than Christ for your salvation. It is possible to be a kind of Pharisee, a religious person who, who thinks, well, of course I'll be at the wedding feast. Why would I not be? Look at my life. I'm not like those prostitutes out there in South Leeds. I'm not like the drunk students on a Friday night stumbling down the road. God would want me. No. No, that's trusting yourself, isn't it? And not accepting this gracious invitation. All the way through Matthew 21. Since Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, there have been two groups uh, there have been the, the, the peasants, the outcasts, and the children, in fact, who cried out, Son of David, King, Jesus, you're our King, Hosanna, which means save us. There's been one group who's cried out, Save me, please, Jesus, you're our King. 
They don't back themselves. They don't rate themselves. Another group, the Pharisees, religious leaders, have said, Jesus, stop those children calling you king and saviour. It's blasphemy. What do you think you're doing? Well, this man must be ultimately in that second category. If you're worried this morning, let me say a couple of things to you. If you think, look, I, I think I've trusted Jesus, but I'm, I'm worried. What, what should you do? You should run to Jesus. The invitation is there for you. It never runs out. The invitation is there for you again this morning. Come. He says, come to me. He will not turn you away. Come with your sin. Come with your hypocrisy, your fears, your doubts. Come and just realize that he is the only one who can help you. You won't find the answers in yourself by trying harder. Must be better. Then I'll earn my place. Just come to him. And if you like, collapse into Jesus. He will have you. He will save you. Try to prepare for this. I found the words of uh, this American preacher, actually, I found it very helpful. Robert Rayburn said this. The real believers feel a shiver go through them, through them at the thought that it might be they the Lord is talking about with this man. Now, he's not saying we should all worry. And it may be that some of us say, actually, you know, I'm humbly, I trusted Jesus for salvation. I'm, I'm okay. I know it's not me. So he's not saying we should all be worried and doubt and, oh, am I saved or am I not saved? Not, he's not saying that at all. Uh, rather, that if you do shiver, but you put your trust in Jesus, you lack some of the assurance. In some ways, that shiver is no bad thing. It is showing you that you're not backing yourself, trusting yourself. You know what you're capable of. of. And as long as that makes you then run back to Jesus for mercy, then you have nothing to fear. He will forgive. He wants all of us at this party. So this isn't about adding good works to your faith or anything like that. Salvation, the party is by grace alone. Ultimately, of course, verse 14 is the punchline. Many are called, but few are chosen. It is a hard passage this morning. We've been longer than we normally would. But let me say a couple of things just in closing. Many are called. The call, the gospel call goes out to as many as we hear it. Our job as a church is to get the, the, the invitation out there. Not to choose who to invite, the ones we think might be worthy. No one's worthy. Just get it out there. God wants everybody. But, but Jesus is realistic. Many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus clearly believes in, in election or predestination, as it's sometimes called. That's not a Paul thing or a theology thing. The language of choosing is on Jesus' lips. God ultimately chooses those who will accept the invitation. He never turns anyone away. Okay, so there's no one out there who's desperately trying to get to the banquet and God says, no, not you. But the problem is, even when we hear the invitation, we won't accept and so God has to do an amazing extra work in our hearts and transform us so that we will believe. In other words, God isn't obliged to re-invite all those who reject the invitation and to keep re-inviting and keep re-inviting until eventually he pours his spirit on them and brings them in. Uh, apologies to the students, I used this illustration a week or so ago. But imagine someone burgles my house okay, on the Monday night and the police catch him and I say, do you know what, I'm going to let him off, I'm going to let him go. And Tuesday night, someone burgles my house and, and the police catch him. And I said, you know, again, I'm going to let him go. Different bur burglar this time. Second burglar, I'm going to let him go. Let him go free. Third night, someone burgles my house. The police catch him. I say, right, chuck him, in, chuck him in jail. Third, different man. Chuck him in jail. Could you accuse me of being unfair? Well, no. I'm not obliged to let people off who burgle my house. If I decide to, in my grace and my mercy, my kindness, well, okay. 
But it doesn't mean I have to do it for everybody. That's kind of the perspective going on here. Okay, you're all invited. We are all invited. But none of us deserve to be. And Jesus knows that only if God chooses us will we be brought in. I can't answer the question why he doesn't choose everyone. I just don't know. But it's not because he's not fair. It's not because he's not fair. We all get what we deserve if we're left on the outside. But in the incredible kindness of God, he brings some on the inside. And we get what we don't deserve, which is eternal life. And this party and joy that lasts forever. What are those words at the end, the punchline of the parable meant to do for you? If you're not a Christian, they're not meant to make you scared and think, well, maybe I'm not chosen. Hear the call and come in. If you are a Christian, they're meant to do two things, I think. They're meant to keep you humble. Don't think, hey, I accepted. Look at all these silly people out there who haven't. No, the only reason you've accepted is God's kindness in essentially making you write a yes to the RSVP. So it's to keep you humble, but also to comfort you. He's not going to throw you out. He brought you in. It wasn't your cleverness that brought you in, your wisdom. It was him. And so he won't ever throw you out. History is heading towards this great party. There is a terrible warning as well. But this great party is where God wants you. So this morning, come, collapse back onto Jesus for mercy, forgiveness. Take him as saviour and lord. He will have you. And you will arrive on that great day, that great wedding feast, where death, fear, pain will be swallowed. And your whole life will be eternal joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, these are both wonderful things and terrifying things that we've thought about this morning. Uh, We pray in your mercy uh, that everything true uh, that I've said will will remain with us and bear fruit. Anything wrong or false that I've said will will fall away. Forgive me my sin, I pray, as a preacher. Uh, Forgive us our sins as those who listen. We praise you for the great future you have when you will swallow up death and that all life will be joy and peace and happiness. Our Father, you have called and so we pray in your mercy you would allow us to answer. Bring in those outside. Grow your church. Fill us with joy. Might we flee the warnings and might you save many in this city, in this church and in this nation. We ask In Jesus' name, amen.